Hi, my name's Paul Kennedy, and I'm a sport reporter for the ABC, and when I'm not listening to the ABC, I listen to Radio Karam. Tune in and enjoy. You're listening to Rowan Prant Method, where we talk all things fitness, mindset, well-being, performance, and lifestyle design, so that you can live a high-performance life. Thank you very much for being patient. I was a little bit late in getting here, but I'm very happy to be here with Carl Thornton, who is a child recovery agent specializing in anti child trafficking. Welcome to the show, Carl. Thank we had to you. clarify that, that it's say he's not in the business of human trafficking. <laughs> he's very much opposed to it. Anti. 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 Yeah. So tell us about your experience, mate. I know a bit myself, but I'd love to, the listeners to hear. Um, well, the Child Recovery Agency uh, started as Silent Integrity, actually, about 13 years ago. Um, I got involved. I'm a, I actually work in the security industry. So I work as a security trainer, uh, also work in security, and put together a program way back in 2010 for an anti-human trafficking uh, organisation. What I didn't realise at the time is to put the package together, we'd put together a training package, um, but to fully understand the environments they are involved in, I found myself being uh, sent overseas uh, to Thailand. And another thing I didn't know at the time is I thought we were going over to review their training processes to see what we could put in place and found out that the way I do that is to go out on operations with them. So I sort of landed in the deep end straight away, uh, doing some intel, some surveillance and working on a recovery operation or what they call a rescue operation. Um, Although it was only a minor part, um, it was still my introduction to seeing unfortunately, the worst side of human behaviour uh, when it comes to uh, child trafficking and child sexual exploitation. Um, so to try and do a brief of the last 13 years, uh, in that time, um, when I came back, uh, because of what I'd seen, I realised that there needed to be something done about it. Um, and so my mind went from a business point of view, because that's it, what it was originally, to go over there to uh, see some corporate angles in some training, Um, it turned into more of a um, volunteer-type situation where throughout the years I've spent, well, 80, over 80 operations um, working in in this field and become known as, which I I don't like this term, I've I've been told by a marketing person actually a while ago that I have to use this term even though I despise it because I don't think there's such thing as an expert in anything because we're always still learning. And I'm still learning myself. I'm continually educating myself and learning from other people. But supposedly now I am an expert in the field of uh, anti-child trafficking and I train law enforcement and NGO personnel who are in the fight as well, as well as still working operationally. Wow. Mate, yeah. that is a quite an experience. And to think it all just started with, you know, a business concept, an idea that you wanted to implement, then you were thrown in the deep end overseas yeah. and learning through experience and became very passionate about it and... I would consider you an expert in reality-based self-defense and in human trafficking. It's mm. a anti-human trafficking to elaborate. Yes. <laughs> but in all those areas, you know, you've dedicated such a big chapter of your life, obviously stemming from security initially. I know you've had some bodyguard work as well. Yeah. Doing a few things like that. Um, I've obviously got a mutual friend, Dave Rosborough. Yeah. He taught me security or how to shoot a gun probably 12 years ago. And <laughs> uh, now he's boxing yeah. with me. He's a yeah. very good character. Yes. But, uh, we, yeah. We, we call each other the twins. Yeah. Have you seen the movie Twins? Yeah, the that's twins? a yeah. great analogy so that's us <laughs> we actually did a, a photo on his 50th um, and I stood next to him and then we superimposed Danny DeVito and Arnold Schwarzenegger so yeah twins I so. love that he's a big man <laughs> he's a mountain of a man <laughs> so uh, very uh, very happy with him boxing yeah. so with the stuff that you've been doing mate it's I'm curious I have, I have lots of questions now yeah. personally just from my experience working with trauma not to the extreme that you've been through but I know that it's a, it's a pretty heavy thing to experience, the things that you would have seen, the stories that you would have heard. How do you manage it? Because I think that will carry over just to people in everyday life that are yeah. dealing with things that they've seen, maybe their own trauma, maybe people that have gone through yeah. it. How do you manage it? How do you leave it at work? Because you have a family, a business, yep, you still yep. have to do these things. How do you separate it? Um, that's a question that's always asked, and I've been doing um, book talks for the last couple of months because I did bring out a book on child, um, child recovery. And it's one of the main questions people ask. Part of me says, I don't know. I think I've got a unique skill of compartmentalising. When I'm involved overseas, uh, people who work with me, who uh, know me from here as well, will know that I'm two different people. 
Over there, I'm a totally different person than what, what I am here. Uh, I think over my years of training um, and just my personality in general, I've been able to deal with different circumstances and situations quite well and been able to, once again, compartmentalise. I have gone through studying uh, modern applied psychology and other areas like that. And when I originally went to, or went down that path to study, it was for two reasons. One, to understand myself a little bit better, uh, to make sure that I had longevity because I don't want to suffer PTSD or anything like that and maybe try and learn how to pick up any warning signs. You know, things start to, to play up with me mindset-wise. Um, but also to understand other people and how they respond and how they react. And I think, again, like I said actually at the start of this um, uh, podcast, is I'm always continually trying to educate myself and learn. And I think through that, um, and once again, just coincidence, we do run a program now called Mindset. And that is just trying to teach people at the core root of understanding our own fears, our own capabilities, um, and how we all respond to adrenaline, because let's face it, that is 90% of my environment overseas. And anybody who works in a high-risk environment, if they don't know how to understand the physiological and psychological changes that happen under those adrenalised states, you are not going to survive. And I think that's where I've honed my skills in the last probably more so three or four years is in studying in those areas to understand what's going on. And then that helps me, I suppose, collaborate that information within myself. And I know this is going to sound a bit odd, but keep a close eye on myself yeah. that if my behaviour changes or if there's anything that starts to become a concern, um, at least I can hopefully pick up on that. Yeah. Great set of skills. Great reasoning to continue to upskill and learn. Yeah. And I know you hate the term, but to become an expert mm. and part of the process is to continue to learn ongoing and I'm sure yeah. in 10 years you'll be at a whole other level again mm. compared to where you originally were. Now with that, what are the physiological things that happen within the body in a high risk situation? Because I think it's not just relevant for people in stressful jobs yeah. or in, a, in something that actually is going to have a physical risk yeah. but anyone that has a perceived threat, even someone that's going to be doing a speech is going to go through the same physiological sensations yeah. most of the time because of the perceived threat in their mind. Yes. So it's all, obviously they're not going to get hurt physically, yeah. but mentally it's the same thing. So yeah. what happens to the body? So uh, let's try and put this as brief as possible. That's going quite, to detail, quite, man. I quite love Quite complex, it. quite uh, complex. Is obviously we know that whenever we, through our five senses, we detect fear, okay, or a threat, is obviously in our amygdala, will process that and put it into that fear category. And as you said, whether that's perceived or whether it's a real threat, the brain doesn't know yet. It's just picked up something that says something's not right here. So that'll then, as I say, put it in that fear category, which then involves the hypothalamus, which will then send out the signals, which then what all of us go through is those physiological changes where the adrenaline, glucose, cortisol gets released into the system or into the body. And that all then starts to um, not just physically but psychologically change the way we respond to things. I use this analogy when I train because I train a lot of government and law enforcement as well um, in situational awareness, conflict management um, and in their physical skills. But I try and get them to understand that we have – and I look mainly at the two parts that we look here – is at the prefrontal cortex – and the limbic responses or the limbic system. And our prefrontal cortex, which is the executive centre part of our brain, the reasoning part of our brain that tries to work out good from bad, best from worst, tries to predict outcomes based on our own experiences um, and what we've learned through life. That I always say to people, when you're in a non-adrenalised state, that's functioning, let's say, at capacity. Whereas your limbic response, which is part of your survival response and your autonomic response, is still operating, but it's really just operating on survival. It works in with other parts of the brain that regulate your, you know, your, your temperature, uh, keeps you breathing, keeps your heart going, all that type of thing. So it's really sitting down there, although it's still functioning, is what I say at low capacity. As soon as that brain detects fear and starts releasing those um, hormones, more so cortisol and adrenaline into the system, that relationship starts to change. And physically, the adrenaline is changing us ready for our fight and flight getting ready for us to, to run or to stand and deliver if we need to do that. Um, but the prefrontal cortex side of the brain is actually starting to shut down because it's not needed anymore. And so we try and educate people that even those who work in high tactical roles, they don't necessarily, they don't get rid of the fear because you can't get rid of fear. It's a natural part of us. What they do is they learn how to work in with what I call the Neanderthal brain. 
Because when you hit a major adrenaline rush and that prefrontal cortex is now operating on its minimal, and that's because the limbic system is shutting it down. That's part of its job. And so when people talk about feeling dizzy or lightheaded or um, confusion in thinking, you need to understand that that's normal. That's happening to all of us. And so the well-trained person is the person who can then work with that limbic system, which is now overriding the prefrontal cortex, to work in together and not get into that confusion. It's the same thing with boxing. And I only know this because I've just spent actually last weekend up with another uh, organisation who were running a talk for CRA, but it was also a boxing event to raise funds for there. And one of their guys or one of their coaches there is actually going through one of our training programs. And he was saying the same thing, is getting people to understand that that fear is normal and natural. It's working out how to understand how it affects you and to work in with it. Mm -hmm. And the other part that we need to understand is we also have what we call the sympathetic nervous system and the parasympathetic nervous system. So the sympathetic nervous system is what drives the fight or flight. Then we have the parasympathetic nervous system, which is the freeze response. So the way I try and explain it to people is sort of, and I won't say in layman's terms, but in that basic is, is a well-trained person, when they're functioning between that fight and flight, is it's really holding that freeze response at bay. The person who's not well-trained or doesn't have the experience or understanding of it will allow that parasympathetic nervous system really just to cut in and say, you know what, let's shut this down. You don't know what you're doing. You don't know what you're thinking about. And that's where we suffer those freeze responses. Mm. And so to finish on that point is there's two um, freeze responses that people need to understand. We have our physical freeze response and we have our psychological freeze response. So the way I explain that is imagine if you're in a, a high-end situation or you're in an aggressive situation and you get that adrenaline rush or dump. Some people may physically just freeze not be able to move. Even though in their head they know they should be running or they should be standing there and defending themselves, they just physically uh, can't move. So that's what we classify as that physical freeze response. The psychological freeze response is where we're not physically frozen, but our mind takes us away from where we are, almost tries to convince us that this isn't going to happen. You know, you might be in the middle of, I don't know, a shopping centre and somebody starts getting aggressive towards you and your brain starts saying to yourself, oh no, nothing will happen here, I'm in a safe environment, they wouldn't attack me in a shopping centre. And so we need to understand how those responses work to be able to then learn how we're going to work with our fear. Um, in my opinion, and studies prove this, because fear is simply an emotion, is you can't get rid of fear. Uh, fear is part of you. So if you can learn how to work in with your fear, it actually becomes a uh, an asset, not a liability. Mm. Because I use this example when I say to somebody, even in a self-defence situation, if I've got somebody in front of me who is going to cause me harm, my fear is doing everything it needs to prepare me. It's giving me the adrenaline I need for my pain tolerance, uh, to, to increase my strength. It's keeping me focused. It's shutting down everything I don't need and priming me for my fight and flight. So if I don't learn to live, uh, work in with that, Fear is actually not letting me down. I'm letting fear down because I'm its physical response. Mm. I'm the one that needs to physically apply what I need to do to either run or stand and defend myself because fear can't do it for me. It's prepped me, primed me, and it's, it's saying to me, right, let's do this. So now it's your choice to work in with that and say, right, I need to work with this because if I don't, I'm letting fear down. Yeah. And that's just how we try and start to develop or change people's mindset because in society today, as you'd know, and I know you've had a few shows covering these issues, is things like anxiety, duress and stress, it's going through the roof yep. in all sorts of environments and situations. So when people can start to learn how fear is a part of and it's all attributed to that anxiety, duress and stress, they can learn how they can understand how it affects them and change their relationship with fear for a better outcome. That is fantastic advice. So fear is often demonised, same with cortisol levels, for example. Yeah. But there's a time and a place for it. It's yeah. there for a reason. It's yeah. kept us alive. It's just not necessarily needed when you are going to the supermarket yeah. and you feel a bit yeah. anxious. Yeah, It's not really relevant in that predicament. Yeah. So 
How can people work with it? Because obviously a lot of people can relate to that thing where the body is frozen when they're in a confrontation. Yeah. Other people rise to the occasion mm-hmm. after being desensitized to a degree or overly exposed to it. Yeah. But I even know combat sports athletes that have had years of boxing training and then they're put in a real reality-based self-defense situation and all their training goes out the window. Yeah. Same with many martial artists because it's yeah, a yeah. new terrain. And again, just thinking under that pressure, how do they prepare themselves for doing it? Yeah. Is it from exposure? Is it from working through it? Is, how would you recommend people can do it? Yeah, look, it is one of those things where I consider fear one of my best friends. Um, I've come to terms with how I respond to fear and I, how I react to fear. And I, I get those questions a lot too because of the industry I work in with people who maybe want to get involved in the type of work we do or even in a security environment or real environment where they think, will my sports skills adapt to those environments? So what they need to understand is, once again, the brain is a very unique, smart tool. The thing is, is no matter how much we fight in a combative environment, and I'm I'm even talking mixed martial arts, where yep. you are in what you would call probably the most elite level of physical combat, where you can be down on the ground getting almost beaten to a pulp and still survive that, i.e. because we have a referee, but your brain still knows that no matter what goes on in that environment, there is still a safety net. It's still going to stop. Somebody's still going to throw in the towel or somebody's still going to um, uh, be able to intervene before it gets too far. Whereas the brain knows that when it's dealing with reality, the first thing that we all fear, which is the unknown, comes into play. So it doesn't matter how well we um, are attuned to one environment, the other is always going to be an unknown. Mm. So I think, as you said, is it is true that the more you can be involved in, I suppose, chaos and dealing in chaos, um, you would know as a a boxer and a boxing coach, is when you run drills and when you run pad drills – the person that you're doing with it knows exactly what you're going to do. They know the combinations and they can hit hard and they can follow up those combinations pretty quick. As soon as they go into a ring and they're dealing with somebody who maybe they haven't done much research on, never really come up against before, they'll tell you their experience a different feeling and sensation because the brain, once again, doesn't have that safety net of knowing that it's in that 100% safe environment. So I think getting people to, unfortunately, and I know this is not a a topic a lot of people like to to talk about, I suppose, but exposure to violence is not something we want to be involved in. But unfortunately, if you're confronted by violence and you don't understand how chaotic violence is, you're going to shut down anyway. Yeah. So I think in boxing, in any combative sport where there's the physical, the brain does start to learn how to process being in those type situations. Um, I know in our reality-based training, whether it be for government departments or even for general public, it's mandatory that we have scenarios or where you will force somebody's adrenal response, whether it be a spike or whether it be a rush or dump, you need to force it because that will show their real behaviours under that adrenaline. Yes. They then also learn how to through training, modify their response to that and over time it will then lead to them being in a what I call a position of advantage when dealing with that that adrenal rush. I love that analogy. Those are very valid points and it's very interesting. So when I'm with my fighters, any of my fighters that are listening that have worked with me at different times, I deliberately put them under stress. Yeah. And the only person that stresses them out is usually me. And I make them have a really uncomfortable time, depending on their particular level. Yeah. But they're all sparring. At, uh, they get to a certain level of stress, but they're in a comfortable environment. They know each other. The first day is obviously stressful. The first yeah. time they get punched in the face is stressful. Yeah. It is for anyone. <laughs> it's a new experience for most people. It's Everybody has to be punched in the face, uh, mate. Uh, or... really, how much do you really know about yourself until you've been punched in the face? <laughs> That's but, right. Uh, it's one of those things that everyone, everyone should go through, hence yeah. the most boxing legend experience. But yeah. in that environment... I I get fighters that have been training for a very long time, very comfortable. They can spar for hours at a certain level, but I will stress them the hell out. Yeah. I'll take them to the deep end of the pool yep. and they'll be huffing and puffing. They'll hold their breath and they'll try and punch on, but they're going at a different level that they're not used to fighting at. Yeah. And I'm staying cool, calm and collected and they fall apart. Yes. And the reason is to try and prepare them for the emotions and the anxiety and the stress response that will happen in competition, particularly yeah. if it's early on or to get to the next level. We have to recreate that stress. Yeah. And I can make them gas very quick. Yeah. It's, a, it's a unique thing to do. And, 
I expose them to that for a reason. Not all the time, but yeah. we need that little short-term exposure so that they're aware of what happens to the body, yes. that their fitness yeah. actually disappears That's in right. that scenario, like yeah. that their fine motor skills disappear, their yeah. reflexes and everything are gone, like they become cavemen trying to fight yeah. and brawl. So I love that you do that with your reality-based self-defense because so many people out there teach self-defense yeah. there's not even any contact. There's yeah, no stress or anything. It's all theoretical. Yeah. Like uh, it's, it's crazy. Yeah. And look, when I started my martial art career, which was when I was 14 years old, um, so I'm 55 now, and in that time I had about two or three years off, um, that was probably one of the downsides to, I suppose, learning the discipline and the art form, which I love and I still love to this date. But for the physical side of it, you had to go and either do boxing or back when I was in my 20s, Unfortunately for me, I wish they did, but they didn't have mixed martial arts and things like that. So I did kickboxing. Yeah. That was the closest thing you could come to to at least have some full impact and see where you stand. And exactly what you said, I remember the first time, and these were only in-club um, uh, uh, competitions. It wasn't like state titles or anything, just in-club competitions. Is I remember the first time, although there was a big crowd, the first time I went into the ring for my first match, I was so... I suppose, taking in everything that's going on around me that I just couldn't focus. Yeah. And I got knocked out because I just had no idea what was going on. The second time I did it, I'd shut out a little bit more of that crowd noise and what was going on around me. Now, I lost on points decision there, but I was a little bit more comfortable in that situation now. And then when I had my third fight, I then won. Yeah. And so it's, it's once again, it's that progression of your brain starting to understand and I suppose be involved in those experiences. And so like you said, when, when, when you're involved in a martial art and as a game, I know when people hear me talk about this, I, I've had a reputation over the years of, well, <laughs> from, certain, from certain people, I had a reputation of always downing martial arts. And when people actually talk to me or are involved with me, no. I love martial arts. I love the art form. I wish I could do half of the stuff some of these martial artists do. Yeah. But all I know from my own experience of over 80 operations, I've been in three life and death situations. I've been slashed. I've been had multiple attackers. I've had everything. When the reality hits, the truth is revealed. Mm. And so if you're not put under pressure in a training environment to get you as close to possible as what's going to happen in a chaotic situation, don't expect to be able to deal in a chaotic situation. Yeah. It's very true. Uh, for anyone that knows me, they're fully aware that I've had quite a few experiences in real-world scenarios yeah. throughout my youth. Not that I say they were good, but it was, a, as you said, it was a way to see how you could handle those scenarios mm. when presented with them. Would the training work? Yeah. A lot of the stuff didn't work, you know what I mean? And again, some of the scenarios when weapons are involved, multiple yeah. attackers, all these things, when there is that uncertainty, there's all these extra variables, cars, yeah. all like everything that's happening in the way. Yeah. Like, it is chaos. Yeah. And with consistency, not that you would want to go out there and do it, you do learn to think in the chaos. Yeah. So yeah. how can the average person do that without going out and putting themselves in dangerous situations? I suppose, and even in, even in our training, I'll, I'll say to uh, people that, because uh, I call them participants, not students, <laughs> um, but our participants, I even say to them, I'll try and create as much as I can as close to reality as possible, but the unfortunate part is your brain still knows there's yep. a safety net. Yeah. Um, I think throughout life, I know I've experienced a lot of things in life just to test myself for adrenaline, whether it be skydiving or whatever. Um, and trying to put yourself in, I suppose, chaotic situations that still have the safety net. Yeah. That is still going to prepare you a lot better than not getting out of your comfort zone. And I think what, what people tend to do, and especially in society today, and I know I've got kids 16, 17 and a 24-year-old, is I think unlike when I was younger and probably when you were younger, is we don't challenge ourselves outside of that safety net enough. Yeah. Um, I get asked with our work overseas, you know, is it an adrenaline thing? Well, I've done all the adrenaline sports here and I don't respond to those sports. It sounds quite odd, but when I skydived, I expected a massive adrenaline rush and I really didn't. Yeah. I was sitting there on the side of the plane ready to be, and you're strapped onto somebody else. It wasn't individual, it was tandem. And you're strapped onto somebody else who basically has got your 
life in their hands, you know, you're thinking to yourself, now, I didn't pack the shoot. I'm not strapped. <laughs> he's actually strapped behind me. So if I'm falling and he's not on me, I'm not really going to know. And I was sort of expecting and, and trying to find that adrenaline rush. But I think through my career and even working in security is my adrenaline is more spiked or the rush is from that unknown. Yeah. And so if I go in my own personal experience, because I don't know other people's experiences, I know challenging yourself, you will learn how to deal with those type of situations. Yeah. You know yourself when you get somebody who first steps in the boxing ring, as you say, you can train them and not um, put them under too much stress to start with. And I'm talking about the contact side of it. But eventually you're going to get it to the point where you've got to punch them in the face. 100%. And punch them in the face harder than what they've ever been hit before. Yeah. Because if you don't do that, again, you're giving them a false sense of reality. Yeah. And and I know, and this is a joke, I did say to David when he did his um, bicep in his fight, I said to him, right, now I'll spare you. <laughs> you know, because yeah. the size of the guy, yeah. um, you know. <laughs> but at the end of the day, the challenge for, for, for everybody is to understand how they respond and work out what they can do. Yes. To forge their own path, to change their own relationship with, once again, their fear, their anxiety, whatever it is, whatever they want to do, is sometimes um, online is good. I've got people who turn around and say to me that they're learning some stuff self-defence-wise online. That's good for a theory component. Yeah. But you are going to have to put that into practice. 100%. But that's not just with self-defence because yeah. everyone is fixated on the knowing and they forget about the actual doing. Yeah. Success doesn't come from the knowing, it's the doing. Even yeah. anything, if it's a breathwork practice, knowing about it and reading a book about it and seeing the facts is not going to help you. You yeah. actually have to implement the work yeah. and apply it and it takes reps and it takes consistency until it becomes second nature. Yeah. Same with all the stuff that I'm sure you train people for. Yeah. Everyone gets so focused on, I want all these million different combinations and all these things. You only need a handful that you yeah. can do under any situation, in any circumstance, your top five that always work, rain, hail or shine, yeah. and just be really good at them. Yeah. Look, it, it's like people come under this false sense of, um, because of the type of work I do, that I'm some sort of expert in every field, and I'm not. I'm good at what I do. I've got other people that work in here as they do. I'll have conversations with people, even if we talk about firearms. I'm an avid shooter. I've been shooting for many years, um, but I'm not a great shot, but I know I can pull a trigger. Yeah. And it's funny. I've ha I had a conversation probably about two or three months ago with an individual who had far more knowledge than me in firearms, in all the different types of firearms and, and you know, all the applications of these firearms. And it was interesting that he'd learnt all that from playing video games. And he had a lot of good knowledge. He knew how to clear weapons. He knew how to adapt weapons. He, all of the knowledge there, 100%. So he's a close friend of mine. Um, and we were at a training one time and I had my firearms there because I was about to head off to, to the range day. And... I stripped the weapon and put it back together. And when I stripped the weapon and put it back together, he said, can I have a go? And I said, unfortunately, no. I said, and I know you won't be able to strip the weapon anyway, because what I've got also is what we call Sims weapons. So in other words, fake firearms that people can train with. So I gave him a fake firearm and I said to him, okay, strip that. And when he was trying to strip it, it was like watching somebody who'd first picked up something they hadn't had before. And I know this is going to be hard to hear on here, or it is filmed as well. Is uh, this? I didn't realise that was back up. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know, I don't know no, if not, it is or not. Done, okay, no. so I'll do this uh, yeah. so you can so, understand without vision. Yeah. <laughs> so the reason he couldn't do it is because he could strip a, f a weapon a lot quicker than I can with his two thumbs on a controller. Yeah. Okay. So, so again, he it. knows the theory and he is quick to write off seeing any firearm and what that firearm is and what it can do and what rounds it shoots and, and, and everything about it. But the physical side of it, take away that controller and they have got no idea what they're doing. But he'd be amazing at trivia. Yes. When it came to something like that. <laughs> I have right. this discussion with a lot of people. I'm like, we need information we can actually use. Yeah. Like, I love facts just as much as anyone. I love going down the rabbit hole. But yeah. give me stuff I can use. Yeah. And a lot of people, you know, they can't apply, even with martial arts. Yeah. I know there's some competitions out that I won't name them, which is uh, 
semi-contact. And I think mm. there's a time and a place for it. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. it allows everyone to have a go. Yes. But it does give people a false sense of security when they're getting all these belts and yeah. then the random at the pub can punch them after 10 beers yeah. and they've got no way to be able to handle it. Yeah. 100%. And <laughs> I remember back in my early years, probably when I was 17, maybe 16, 17, I probably unlike yourself, I don't know, but I was not the best child growing up. Mm, was I got I. myself into a lot of trouble and my parents had the police knocking on the door more times than <laughs> I can imagine. And this isn't hidden information. It was in one of my books. Um, at 16, um, I almost found myself going down the wrong road. Yep. I was on a 12-month good behaviour bond for, for theft and assault and all sorts of different things. Um, but what I always found funny was when I'd ever compete, because I loved my martial arts, but the funny thing was whenever I got in situations out in the street, none of my martial arts come out. Yeah. Just true true grit and violence came out. Yeah. You know, so there's a big difference. And when I used to go into these, as you said, these semi-contacts, point sparring and things like that, it was amazing how good some people were at that. But what used to frustrate me is I would lose to somebody through that point sparring and in my head I'd just be thinking to myself, yeah, but that wouldn't have taken me out. Yeah. And yeah. I could probably hit harder than this person, but I'm not given that opportunity. And that was actually where I then ventured into more of the boxing side of it because I thought at least there is you do have that if I get hit, there's going to be a result. If I hit somebody else, there's going to be a result, not just a judge who's determining whether that would be effective or not, having no idea what you can take or what yeah. the other person can take. Well, there's so many discrepancies between judging and combat sports as it is. And yeah. It's one of the only sports in the world where you can get one person saying blue corner one, the other person says red corner one, and says one says they can't decide. They think yeah. both one. And everyone will argue the same point. But interestingly enough, from my experience, I had a bit of a reckless young, I was a reckless young person as well. And when I was in the ring, I was very methodical, very strategic, yeah. very... Uh, I had a lot of strategy, for a very good counterfighter. Very, mm. I loved the skill. But when I was in a real-world scenario, it was completely different. Yeah. A very different mindset, very uh, – I wouldn't – I don't want to throw the word. Uh, I don't know. Uh, what's a good word that I can use for radio? Uh, effective. Yeah. <laughs> very effective. Yeah. And it's, uh, it, it was a very different thing. And yeah. I think what's great about the fact that you experience that mm. – you've used it in a better environment. Like that's equipped you with the capacity to yeah. have that real world experience to go over there and effectively save these children. Yeah. And I don't think you would, like if you hadn't had that early on exposure, oh, yeah. like you probably wouldn't have been able to go to the next level mm. where your fucking life is on the line. Yeah. Where it's a serious yeah. situation you're throwing yourself into. To go to another part of the world, unknown, mm. a foreign country against people that are very bad people that have no moral code and yeah. they'll do whatever they can to continue what they're doing and you're like the regular Liam Neeson trying to bring them down. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, uh, it's all part yeah. of your story. Uh, look, it's, it's like you said. So I know how I respond. So how I respond under high levels of threat, even in violent situations, is I calm down. Yeah. And like you said, I become methodical. The unfortunate part is, is one thing I also know for myself, once again, from childhood, and this is probably not something, once again, a lot of people like to, to feel comfortable with, but I'm a very violent person. I'm methodical and violent, but I know how to use that. And when people say, ask me why I'm so confident in everything I do, they don't like my answer. Because my answer is, I know myself, and unfortunately, violence has given me a sense of security to know who I am and what I can do. That doesn't mean that I'm unstoppable. Mm. That doesn't mean I can't be defeated. All it means is, is I know how far I can go. And so if you've got that within you, that you know how far you can go and what you can achieve based on what you can do, it doesn't really matter what the other person thinks they can do. Mm. if that makes sense. Yeah. So I know with our teams overseas, I work with some pretty well, uh, pretty uh, skilled individuals and we're actually in the process now and this is probably for the first time that people are going to hear this. Um, I'm actually over in America in August because we've got another team being developed over in the US to help with our work overseas as well and specialising in an area that we call repatriation, which is extraction, which is going into high-risk zones um, in a country at the moment, which is a very high-risk zone, to get people out of there, predominantly children, because that's, that's the area we work in. And again, you know, I'm getting the opportunity to go over, and I've already said to them, 
can we do some physical training as well? Because I don't actually need to train them in anything physical. They've already got the skills. I'm talking about ex-military who have worked in high-level roles. Um, they got all probably better physical skills than I've got. Um, I just need to train them in the environments to understand what we're going into, to understand the culture, to understand what trafficking is all about in the areas well, it's where we work. it's a new arena. They're, yeah, yeah. They're totally. warriors, but it's a completely totally. different area. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I could not give up the opportunity to say to them, can we have a day or two together just to, I want to test my shit against your shit. <laughs> yeah. And it can fail, you know. Yeah. Uh, it can fail. I don't care. Uh, as I said, my close friends and those who have worked with me and know me well, um, I, don't, I don't think I know everything. I just love to challenge myself. Win or lose, you don't lose. You learn. And so I don't care what the situation's in. I'm not. I'm also not stupid. I'm not going to stand in the ring with somebody like Dave and say, right, let's go for a, you know, a round. He's probably <laughs> yeah. going to kill me. But if I can kick him in the balls and do everything violent, <laughs> then I might stand in the ring and give myself a bit of a chance. I think <laughs> uh, it's a very interesting thing that people need to consider, that there is a time and a place for violence. Yes. I think everyone should have the capacity to be violent. It doesn't necessarily make you a bad person, no. a mean person. You are not an abusive person no. being violent. But the fact that you can be violent mm. when it counts, you can use that to protect others. It means that you are sure of yourself when yeah. you're going into any environment because you can back yourself. Yeah. It's a it's a skill that I think everyone should have, man and woman. Yeah. And I say this with self-defence. Everyone likes to think, oh, violence is so bad, I don't want to learn it, I don't, I'm not going to make it a priority. If you're ever in a situation where you need it, you bloody, uh, you want to know it. Yes. And I hope you're never in that situation, yeah. but if you are, it's going to have devastating consequences yeah. if you are not prepared to deal with it. Yeah. I've seen so many people with PTSD, it's completely changed their entire yeah, lives because yeah, yeah. they haven't had the resources and skills to handle it. Yeah. So violent people that know how to control it, there's, That's a, it. there's a quote, I think it's, um, who said it? Uh uh, Jordan B. Peterson, he was talking about start up being be a monster. Yeah. And yeah, then yeah. You know, learn to control it. Yes. That is something that can be used in so many environments yeah. like the field that you're working in now. Yeah. Impacting lives. It's it's a valuable tool and it's a language that most people really don't understand. Yeah. It's something that everyone likes to keep taboo and say, you know, it's not a part of society. It's not accepted. Yeah. But when she gets a fan, we yeah. want those violent people that are capable of violence. Yes. I brought out a book I think in two thousand and uh, 12, I think it was somewhere around there. And it was called Violence as a Survival Tool. And so the way I try to explain it to somebody, if you come up against somebody who's violent for outcome, in other words, their intent is for criminal gain or whatever else, and they're willing to do whatever it takes, unless you're willing to be just as violent, you are not going to survive that situation. The difference is, is they're using violence for an outcome. You're using violence as a survival tool. And so the way I put it in a real brief format is is if I confront somebody and they're willing to be violent and I do nothing and they say, punch me and I go to the ground, there's all likelihood they're going to follow up by stomping on me, kicking into me or doing whatever else. If you reverse those roles and I have somebody confront me and I know there's going to be violence but I decide to strike first and I hit them and they go down, I'm going to run. Yeah. Job done. I don't need to be involved in that situation. And even overseas, we've been involved in situations where once we know that we have used what force is necessary to stop that threat, you get out of there. Yeah, you're neutralising yeah, the threat. Yeah, you don't use excessive or dispropor uh, disproportionate force. And so I think with people who are well-trained, and I'll, I'll use government departments as an example here, is I train a lot of um, councils and government departments in their situation awareness, their conflict management and their physical skills. Now, their physical skills are at the lower end. They're just evade and escape type skills. So in other words, let's say you've got a parking enforcement officer who's giving somebody a ticket. They get confronted by an angry individual. I obviously teach them how to position themselves, how to put their hands up, how to try and de-escalate and negotiate. But if all else fails and that person decides to attack, some basic skills for them to evade and get out of there and run. Not to stand there and get into a fight. No but to evade that and get out of the way. Because survival is the objective. Yes. And if yep. they don't have the skills and resources, plus the risks that are associated with actually combating yep. with someone, yeah. just get out of there. That's yep. the simplest thing to do. Oh, yeah. Uh, consequences, we, we run in-house programs on what I call the aftermath, and we run them at least once or twice a year. And that is for people who think that self-defence is as simple as defending yourself. There are going to be consequences when mm. you defend yourself, whether you win or lose. Yeah. Because if you use self-defence within self-defence law, that still doesn't guarantee that you're not going to end up in jail. 
it honestly, it stresses me out. And I yeah. think when, like, there's many people out there, a lot of people in my network that lived a life where, you know, in the environments we were in, it was pretty mm. common. People just got into fights. Yes. Yeah. what happened. It was accepted. Most of us are all friends now. But it was a part of life. Yeah. The idea of being in a confrontation now stresses me out because mm. I don't want to go so far that it ruins my life yeah. and I hurt someone. Yeah. And I know I can hit very hard and yeah. I know in a stressful situation if I'm defending my family or something like that. Mm. Worst case scenario, I'm terrified that someone would break into my house and I yeah. have to literally fight with this person. Someone's going to get badly hurt. It's either yeah. going to be me because I don't go far enough Yeah. because I'm you know keeping one foot out the door for whatever reason. I'm being re- uh, reserving myself yeah. or I go far enough to really hurt them and there are legal complications. So it's a stressful thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's why once again... The more, the better trained you are, and the more options you've got, the less likely you are to use disproportionate force. Yeah. Because you know what your options are. Yeah. If you're trying to negotiate your way out of a situation, if you're the sort of person that thinks, well, you know what, I could knock this person out, that's the wrong mindset. Because when you do that, what complications then follow up after that? Yes. So unless you're under direct threat, whether that be a verbal or physical, because once again, in self-defence law, a lot of people are under the misconception that you have to wait to be hit before you can defend yourself. You can hit first if you feel under threat. Is it still Crimes Act 1958, use of force? The 462A, yeah. Yeah, PRNO, proportionate, reasonable, necessary uh, to the objective, yeah? Yes. Was that it? Yeah, it's been a long time. And so within that, there is still going to be, as you say, that objective, it's not going to be, because I worked within what I'm allowed to do in self-defence law, it is still going to be assessed yeah. and it's still going to be looked at. But as I say to people, at least if you're working within the law and let's say it does end up in court, you've got a better chance of being self-defence if you worked within the law. Yeah. Whereas if you worked outside of the law and used disproportionate force or excessive force, there's no way it's going to fall into self-defence law. Can you explain what would count? Because I know that, I think they had the plus one rule or something like yeah. that. They still do that? So, look, I'll give you a really basic example. Yeah, I'm sure our listeners will love it. Let's say I turn around and I'm confronted by somebody and they're showing me uh, aggression and it's escalating into possible violent behaviour. Maybe I've got my hands up asking him to back off and I'm doing everything I can to try and de-escalate the situation. I'm not throwing out insults. I'm not doing anything other than just asking him to back off, just back off. But they keep coming at me not at a force to strike, but keep moving in on me. And now I feel under threat. If I was to turn around and say, punch that person in the face, and I call it the four feeds. When you hit somebody, only four things happen. We hope for the first one, which is they stop. If I hit you, you either go to the ground or you stop. You give up because you're full of shit, whichever way. (laughs) The other three feeds are when you hit somebody, they either cover up, hit back, or try and grapple. Yeah. In other words, try and grab hold of you. They're our natural limbic responses to when you're get, when when somebody's getting hit. And so if I hit you and you cover up and you're staggering around, that would be my time to run. That is use of force. Mm. That is self-defence because the threat. So as soon as the threat has been deemed as stopped, that is when I'm using self-defence. But if let's say I decided because I'm in a hyper-aroused state or maybe I'm not very well trained, I decide to throw one more punch. Yeah. Now I'm in trouble. Really? Just that one extra strike? Now I'm in trouble. See, I knew if someone was actually intending to finish the person off and they go yeah. after them or something like that and follow up. And a lot of people do, as you said, when they're heightened, they're yeah. caught up with the emotions, the stress yeah. response is there. The neocortex is not working anymore. Yeah. So they're not really thinking with a smart brain. Yeah. And they get into... They want to hurt the person. Yeah, yeah. They're mad. They've been hit. They're offended. You know, they're defending their honour for whatever reason. Yeah. And it becomes like intent to hurt. Yeah. That's when it's – but it's actually just one strike after the situation being neutralised. then they're going to look at it and go, right, why did you Why did you do that? Yep. The threat had stopped. Yes. You had a reason to um, leave. Yep. Okay. Um, or disengage. But you decided to engage. So then if anything – so – Let's take a worst-case scenario. And once again, this is not legal advice, please. This is not legal advice. Mm. I'm just giving you some some things to think about. If I hit you once and you fall backwards and hit your head on the ground and you die from a one punch, is if I was under threat, I've got the right to hit first and that was a secondary result of the action. I didn't mean for you to die. I didn't mean for you to hit your head on the ground. I just hit you because you were a threat. But you've hit the ground and hit your head on the ground. Now, there is still a possibility I could end up getting charged with manslaughter, whatever, if that person was to die. But at least I worked within self-defence law. So there's a chance that I can get off. 
But if I hit you and you go down and I threw that extra punch or that extra kick when I didn't have to, then I'm in a world of, of trouble. Yeah. Because I didn't stop when there was a possibility to stop. So, and I'll, I'll touch on one point there because you actually said something before which is interesting for people to understand as well. When you're defending yourself, you're at, I suppose, you're in the, in, in the process of fight, flight, freeze. So when you feel threat, okay, or when you feel fear, that's your emotion fear because of that threat, is as I said, and as we know, adrenaline, cortisol and glucose are released into the system. Right, glucose is what gives us that burst of energy and everything else. And we know what cortisol is. It's our stress hormone and yep. adrenaline is changing all those physiological um, um, uh, things, getting our body ready for fight and flight. The problem with somebody who's in a hyper-aroused state who is in their rage and aggression phase, the unfortunate part is, is they also have cortisol, glucose and adrenaline. Yeah. The one thing they don't have is flight and freeze. They bypass those. Yeah. So in that self-defence situation, why, in my opinion only and within law, I don't have to wait to be hit, I can hit first, is because if I'm going to allow my process to go through a fight-flight-freeze while I'm confronting with somebody who's in their fight because they're in a hyper-aroused state, I need to hit first. Yeah. I think a lot of people don't come to terms with that. They feel like, oh, you throw the first punch. Like people in this thing where they they wait to get hit and – and there's another thing that often comes up. I've known many people that have fallen in this situation over the years where someone has attacked them and then they haven't fought back for whatever reason. That person has then stopped. Yeah. And then they have followed up and responded, whether they've followed that person down the street or whatever yeah. it may be, and they've attacked. And they've got in trouble, but in their head they haven't started it. Yeah. But essentially the situa- a situation was neutralised, it was over. That person had hit them, but they're no longer a threat yeah. in the eyes of the law. Yes, yeah. So you're allowed to use what force is necessary to stop a real and impending threat yep. as long as that threat is not disproportionate or you yep. don't use excessive force. So even if you break that down, you're allowed to use what force is necessary to stop a real and impending threat. So real and impending means it's happening, okay? And threat, well, who can tell you whether you feel under threat? Only you can. Yeah. So in that type of situation, if you've been assaulted or you've been attacked and that person ran off, the threat doesn't really exist anymore because mm-hmm. they're not there. Yes. So even if you break it down into that part of the law, for you to get up and then chase after that person for whatever reasoning you might have in your, your head, you're no longer dealing with the threat. The threat's gone. Yeah. And so yet if I deal with uh, defending myself first in that situation, I'm working within, within using what force is necessary to stop that threat at the time as long as once I do, say, hit that person and it finishes or even if, I, even if I'm confronted with a FOSS and FOSS is a term... I use a lot because I've faced a lot of fosses in my life, especially in security. Foss is an acronym for full of shit. (laughs) I've met a lot of fosses as well. Yeah, they'll confront you. And and look, let's face it, nobody can tell on a podcast, but I'm only 5'6". Yeah. So even working security on doors, the amount of times I'd get people who would challenge me simply because of my height, especially when they're intoxicated. But as soon as you gave them a physical response, even low, even if it's just physically pushing them back, slamming your hands into their chest and pushing them back, you can see that change and you can see that look on their face like, oh, shit, hang on a minute. You can see where they're changing now because they've realised that you're going to be a physical response and that they were actually full of shit. Mm. They thought that they had it over you until you physically responded. Now, again, if that then keeps that person away from you, there's no need for you to then engage yeah. and start striking. But if that person isn't full of shit and wants to test you on that and move in, you've got every right to defend yourself. Yeah. You know, so, and That's, again, this is not legal advice. No, 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 <laughs> but it makes sense and yeah. um, it, is, it certainly does. And those fosses, they're definitely out there in numbers. I've oh, met yeah. many of them. I'm six foot, but I like to consider myself as one of the little people. Yeah. And my always had in the back of my head, I never really worried about big people because no one really stood up to them. Yeah. I mean, they, I called them herbivores. They were really big and they puffed their chest out, yeah. made a lot of noise, drew a lot of attention to themselves. I've the little guys, them. The little guys, they always had to fight because yeah. no one was scared of them. So they had real world experience. Yeah. Like they, you know, they were prepared to go and they'd yeah. had the, the, the background in doing it. Big mm. guys usually, most people just back down. Yeah. So yeah, it's Because they've, they've relied on that intimidation factor. Yeah. And in security, I've worked with a lot of them where when something kicks off, you turn around and they're, they're not there. Yeah. I've heard lots you of know. stories of guards disappearing and running. Yeah. About, there's been lots of things like yeah. that. My theory is, I, and part of our, I suppose, our motto for even for our self-defence training is respect all, fear none. 
And when you consider I've built my career on telling people we all feel fear and you can't get rid of fear, you need to learn how to work in with it. I do get people turning around and saying, yeah, but you're telling people also, you know, respect all, fear none. And so I explain to them, respect all means that I will show everybody respect. As long as you're showing me respect, I will give you that mutual respect. That doesn't mean if you don't show me respect that I'm going to get aggressive. I'm just probably not going to want to be around you. Probably going to walk off and leave you where you're standing. But what I mean by fear none, I don't fear any man. I fear what they can do. Yeah. I've confronted people overseas where it's not a big guy that has nearly had my life in their hands. It's been somebody who has been half my size and I'm not that big, yeah. as in tall, fairly stocky, yeah. but not tall. After time under tension training? Yes, <laughs> yes. Uh, now you're again, now. I think from eight, the, the age of 18, I also had only two and three, two or three years off gym, so I continually train, yeah. train, train, but uh, I love it, but it's also part of my work, so you've got no choice. But, yeah, so go, going back to that, that theory is I don't fear anybody – I fear what they can do. And I say to people, now that I've been in three uh, knife knife situations, I would rather confront somebody six foot tall and looks like they're, you know, been working out for the last 10 years and tattoos from head to toe than a, a person standing next to them at five foot one at 45 kilo with a knife in their hand. Yeah. There's probably I'm going to go scared, that guy. Probably scared, doesn't know where they're stabbing yep. you, flailing around, yep. full of emotions, full uh, of that and adrenaline. And don't and, yeah. even get me started on martial art knife self-defence. Oh, man, they're good. <laughs> Haven't you seen them? They're amazing. I, actually, I love your videos. I always pop up in my news feed where you're sharing some whiz-bang martial artists teaching self-defence uh, or gun defences. They're always oh, good to see yes. as well. Yeah. And so we do get people coming to us saying, look, can you do you train in those areas? And I do train people in those areas, but not in a one-off class. Yeah. Otherwise, you're going to go out there thinking you've got some fandangled technique, and you're going to be dead. Yeah. As simple as that. Yeah. Um, my failure, um, and I'll try and describe this um, actually, as I say, because not on uh, video, is. I had taken somebody down and I had them in what we call a bracelet grip. I had their arm hyperextended. I had them in prone position, in other words, lying down on their stomach. I had one, my, one knee over the back of their uh, tricep, other knee on their back, and I had my hand pushing their face into the ground. And that's the only time I noticed this person who had jumped me had a knife in his hand. Mm. So... I didn't have time at, at the time because of adrenaline and everything else to worry about whether I'd been stabbed or cut anywhere else, but I'm holding him down. And this was in our work overseas. And so I had my partner who was dealing with his individual, and for legal reasons, I will make this sound quite um, uh, basic, is for legal reasons, he'd finished what he needed to do. As he started approach over towards where I was, my brain for that split second must have thought, ah, oh, I've got help. So in that split second, uh, second, I lightly let go of the grip around his hand that had hold of the knife, mm. lightly for a split second. As I did that, and this person was half my size, but because his intent for survival was probably as high as mine and his adrenaline and everything else pumping, he pulled his hand out from mine. Luckily, it was a single blade knife. So it was actually as the knife was pulled through, the back strap of the knife or the back edge of the knife dragged across my hand. Well, you can see that there. Yeah. They can't see it. Straight up the side of the hand there because I did open my hand instead of leaving it closed because that would have taken fingers off. But if that was a double-edged knife, I would have lost fingers. Yeah. You know, and, and I remember before that and before the other two knife incidences where luckily they didn't result in me getting cut or stabbed was – None of the training that I'd learnt years before in some of these so-called knife defences, more so static knife defence where the person's going to stab you but they leave their arm out for you to do 10 different moves on their arm. <laughs> as soon as you throw in a bit of recoil, it all just unfolds. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so – and same with firearm defence. We do teach some but ours is more understanding how firearms work. And unless that is in your face and you've got a chance of grappling with that person straight away – just do what you need to do. Yeah. Whatever they tell you to do, do. But if you can get hold of it, at least the one thing, especially with an automatic weapon, you grab hold of it, at least you might have jammed it. Yeah. So you've got a chance. But there's no foolproof 
foolproof way of, of training somebody in a short seminar or whatever in that sort of stuff. So I stopped that actually many years ago in the general public realm of teaching any of that sort of stuff. If you want to learn that, and especially even in the law enforcement and security I train, they're ongoing programs. Yeah. You know, you need to be going over it again and again and again and again, not just on a, a four-hour weekend You're never seminar. done. It's not something no. that you master in a weekend no. retreat. It's something that no. you have to do, practice, apply. No. If you need it for your no. job, yeah. or anything like that, you, you should be making it a priority, same as anything. I was getting shot at once and somebody said, what did you do? And I said, I just made sure that the sounds of the shots were getting faint. <laughs> I just ran. Yeah. You know, there's no so running heroes. is a prerequisite. Yeah, you yeah. If you can't it. run, do something. But if you can run, run. Yeah. You know, because to think that I'm going to stand there and test my skills and see how good I am against a live firearm, I'm not going to do it. No way. If I have to, I will. But luckily I haven't been put in a position yet with firearms where I've had to be that close hand-on-hand. Hand. Yes, I've had people shoot at me. Yes, I've been able to, to, to create distance as quick as possible, but I haven't had to stand there with somebody pointing a gun in my face. Yep. So again, my theory and what I train people is still just understanding the basics of what may work, yep. not a definite guarantee. So a lot of those people that I work, even in a boxing sense, that want to transition over to self-defense. Yeah. And if it's just they do a, a couple of sessions or something, I do a lot of things about controlling space. Yes. So making sure yep. that ideally staying out of range and they can move yep. back and then breaking angle so that yep. I get stuck on a wall or something, parry, break off to the side yep. where they Perfect. can strike or they can bail. Yes. That's the main thing. And even in the boxing ring, I love to get to the blind spot where we yep. can hit them, but they can't hit us yep. because then they're forced to turn to be able to attack again. Yeah. yeah. And you and can get the hell out yep. of there. You've got the whole ring yep. again. Like it's controlling space. Worst case scenario, you have have no space, yeah. you jam it. So you yeah, get yeah. so close if they have no room to yep. fire and ideally you can fire. Combatives 101. Yeah, it's, yeah, a, yeah. it's the same principles. Yeah. It's just applied to a different field. The only thing I teach people who have got, say, a good boxing background is, um, because this is natural, I know, and it's not, not anybody's fault, it's just something to, to think about, is if I don't want it to escalate, the thing I've got to make sure is if my background is in something like kickboxing or boxing or whatever, is if I've got an aggressive individual in front of me, say with an open stance where their hands are splayed to the side, they're not in a fighting stance, but they're showing that aggression, I've got to really make sure that when I put my hands up to ask them to back up, that I keep my hands open. Yeah. Because as soon as I start to close my fists, that is a fight trigger to them. Yep. So straight away, that's when them fists are going to come up. Yep. And all of a sudden, they think they're in a fight. Yeah. If I want to hit you in the face, off. yeah, yeah. If I want to hit you in the face <laughs> as quick as possible, I'm going to leave my hands open, really asking you, "Can you please back up? Can you please back up?" Because then I can fire off my dominant side with whatever I want. There's no fight trigger. As soon as I close my fists in front of you, there's going to be a fight trigger. Carl, I'm really yes. enjoying this conversation. You've but been an absolute expert. But we've actually, I think, the time went very fast, yeah. and we're going to have to have you back. Yeah, You're no a wealth worries. of knowledge. Before you go. Yep. Where can people find you? So obviously you've got the book, you've got a seminar that you're doing to do with yep. fear. What's the title? Um, so mdta.com.au is our training organisation. The Mindset Program, which is I think on the 27th of May, um, that's at mdta.com.au mindset, so forward slash mindset.html, and mindset is with a capital M. Yeah, yep. excellent. But other than that, uh, also we do run the Child Recovery Agency, but they're basically linked in together. So. I also see that you're looking for sponsorship to continue yes. doing the work that you're doing. It is a non-for-profit. Is yes. that correct? Yeah. Okay. How can people get involved? What do you need? Okay. So if once again, I hope you've got pens here, <laughs> is childrecoveryagency.org.au, all of the information's on there. Yeah. Yeah. So does all funds go towards the initiative, rescuing yes. kids overseas? So, so we don't, um, all of our volunteers are volunteers. They're actually self-funded if we can't get the funding together. All funding covers is basically airfares, basic accommodation um, and on-ground expenses. Nobody gets paid for the work we do. Yeah. Um, I've spent the last 13 years not getting paid for the work we do overseas. Yeah. Um, and none of the guys that are associated with us do. It's all volunteers. So that's where all the funds go. Everyone listening, everyone likes to think that they have children's best interests at heart. This is your... A real-world scenario where you have the ability to help rescue kids in countries that aren't as fortunate as yeah. us. Obviously, bad things still happen here, but it's not as prevalent as it is overseas. Yeah. Many of these kids never get seen again. They don't get the support they need, and people like Carl are out there doing what they can. So ideally, go to that website, reach out through. You can even contact me as well for Carl's details and support yeah. any way you can. So everyone, next nice. week, Adela Holmes is going to be back for part two talking about how to heal from trauma. 
So we talked about everything with complex trauma, developmental trauma, what actually happens in those scenarios, uh, control crying, everything else. Now, if you've experienced that or you know someone that is, maybe you're a support worker or something, maybe you are someone that's experienced trauma yourself, we're gonna talk about how to heal because you can actually heal. So tune in for that and we'll speak then. Hello, my name is Océane, I come from Martinia and you are listening to Radio Carom. <laughs> Call TAD to remodel my place. Said I wanted it to be that kind of place Knee deep in the reno Sinking in our fights Other shonky builders Waking me up at night And Adam plays the boss man He listens to the customer Don't you remember He built this kitchen He built this kitchen with T-A-D We built this kitchen We built this kitchen with T-A-D We built this kitchen We built this kitchen with T-A-D 